Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopone. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids... Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. If you study portraits of Michelangelo, you might notice that his nose looks slightly misshapen. The story goes that in Florence, sometime before 1492, when Michelangelo was not yet 20... A young man called Petro Torrigiano punched Michelangelo Buonarroti in the face, hitting his nose so hard that I felt its bone and cartilage yield, and so the mark I then gave him he will carry to the grave. It must have been quite a sight to behold the tall Torrigiano launch himself at the skinny Michelangelo. How did this surly, violent teenager rise to such eminence as an artist that he was commissioned by royalty, creating works such as the portrait bust of Henry VII and Henry's tomb with his wife Elizabeth of York. How did Torrigiano help to usher the Renaissance into England? And how did he later fall so low as to be imprisoned in a Spanish jail where he met his end? To learn about Torrigiano, I'm joined today by Harvard University professor Felipe Pereira, Professor Pereira is an art historian specialising in late medieval and early modern art, art theory, image theory and the history of architecture. He's published extensively, including the 2018 Crime and Illusion, the Art of Truth in the Spanish Golden Age. Later this year, The Man Who Broke Michelangelo's Nose will be published by Penn State University Press, the first book ever written about this very colourful artist. Professor Pereira, thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. This is a really fascinating topic because this is an... Well, we'll discuss whether you think of him as an artist in a moment. But to me, it seems to be an artist about whom we don't know that much and yet is so important. So perhaps let's start with the basics. Could you tell us some biographical details about Pietro Torrigiano? When and where he was born? How much we know about his early life and his background? when he became an artist, that sort of thing. 
Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity for me. I've been working in this book for many years and it's exciting to share my research with people. So going to the beginning of his life, we don't know really much of his early years, but what we know is quite interesting. Uh, Pietro Torrigiano, the artist of the tombs of the Westminster Abbey, was a, the son of a winemaker, family of Vinateri, uh, as one would say in Italian, and uh, the owners of a small silk shop in Florence. And he was the third of the family of six brothers who, unlike his brothers, he decided to move into a workshop of a local artisan and learn the art of sculpture. That would be like the usual narrative for many artists at the time. He left the city, though, when he was around 20, to never return to live in Florence, spending the rest of his life over 30 years traveling in Italy and Europe. And actually, London is like the final stop of his a very long life of travels. But here's the most surprising thing. He always thought that he will finally return and spend his last days in Florence. And we know this because he kept on sending money to his family in Florence throughout the years from Italy or from Spain and acquired even a farmhouse and several acres of vineyard and olive trees in the surroundings of the city. And this is particularly tragic for, and I will hope to have some time later to talk about it, Torrigiano had a terrible end in Spain at the hands of the Inquisition so that he never got to enjoy the retirement that he seems to have long been planning. So it's a very interesting life story, I believe. Now, is it fair to call a man like Torrigiano an artist? Would the 15th century have referred to him in that way or do they call him a craftsman? Well, this is a very good question. In fact, Torrigiano is kind of the perfect case study to consider how the category of what we now call the artist is not a universal one, but instead is something that is historical and was in some ways actually invented during the 15th century, the time in which he was living. So yes, Pietro Torrigiano was trained as an artist in Florence, as a sculptor to be more precise, but neither the category of artist nor that of sculptor meant much in the countries where he developed most of his career, and obviously I'm referring back to Spain and England, right? As in England, and particularly in Spain, Torrigiano would have been considered an image maker, an imaginario or a, an imaginator, a specific category of artisan, who was the one devoted to the making of religious polychrome sculpture, sacred mostly. In other words, Torrigiano would have been an artist or an artisan depending on where he was working. And this could be seen as a limitation to the freedom of his art and work. But as I argue in my book, it turned out to be exactly the opposite. It became for him the opportunity to reflect on the classical tradition, right, of the Renaissance with a different artisanal perspective. And I'm referring in particular to the decision to make, to polychrome his sculpture, even if these were modeled after important antique statues, such as the, you know, the Belvedere Apollo or the Belvedere Torso, now famous now in Rome. These were modeled, but then later polychrome, but also his preference for softer, more malleable materials as clay, terracotta, instead of marble, the medium that was privileged by the Florentine master. So he has the take of an artisan on a tradition that was at the time being shaped as that of the canon of what we now call the arts. That makes him truly exceptional, I believe. That's really interesting. So it's the fact that he's kind of transgressing the normal definitions of a craftsman, but has those skills that means that he is bringing that to being an artist and also that sort of fullness of expertise as well as creativity come into their own. And I suppose if we think about this period, it's a period in which 
We have people like Vasari writing the lives of the artists and making them famous as artists. And of course, chiefly amongst them, Michelangelo. And that takes us back to this moment of violent encounter between Michelangelo and Torrigiano. It's an extraordinary story. It seems to have happened <laughs> when they were both apprentices. So what happened? Why were they together? How did this altercation happen? Why was Torrigiano quite so cross? So Torrigiano, it is followed a very faithful destiny. Uh, he was trained like a normal artisan, as I said before, in Florence, uh, probably in the workshop of an artist called Verrocchio. But then he was chosen by the ruler of the city, Lorenzo the Magnificent, to be trained with a little group of masterful, young, ambitious artists at what he called the Garden of San Marco, which was kind of a little school, sometimes called an academy, in which under the uh, instruction of a local artist, uh, Bertoldo, they will be looking at the antique sculptures and studying them and making drawings. And as I said, it was a, a small group of people. One of them was, of course, Michelangelo Bonarroti, and this brought a lot of uh, competition among them. Not that competition was unique or ambition, a trait or an attribute of Torrigiano's character. I think that was very much embedded into the artisanal culture of the Renaissance, particularly in this time. I mean, we know what Vasari has to tell us, that it was mostly envy, but it was, the story is, I think, more complicated. There was a lot of what the Italians would call paragone, a competition between them, uh, which ended up in a very tragic episode that made him unfortunately famous in other words it's young men and competition who would have thought it they have an argument so what happens to Torrigiano after this incident so this is certainly the most famous episode of Torrigiano's life right much more than his own work I'm afraid we have several sources telling similar versions of the story but the one that I like the most, the one that the artist himself told to Benvenuto Cellini, as the Italians say, se non è vero è ben trovato, right? If it's not completely true, it still makes for a great story. Uh, <laughs> the thing is that Torrigiano told Cellini when they met in Florence years after the one day, as they were both Michelangelo and himself students at this school of San Marco, their teacher, having taken them to draw the church of Il Carmine, where the famous frescoes, Masaccio, some people might know, are still today, and they both making drawings of the frescoes. And then Michelangelo started to brag, apparently, on the quality of his own work, dismissing that of the others, not only of, uh, probably of Torrigiano. And I don't think that's this story is far is unreliable. I mean, we know that that's some things that characterized Michelangelo, right? In any case, Torrigiano told Cellini that it made him terribly upset so that he punched Michelangelo on his face leaving his nose broken for the rest of his life. A very similar story is told by Torrigiano's biographer, Giorgio Vasari, so that something of the kind must have happened, right? So, as I said, se non è vero è ben trovato, in any case. Your second question is what happened to him afterwards. That is one of the most interesting, but also, I have to say, obscure periods of his life. We know that after fleeing Florence, he started to travel across Italy, looking for work. He went to Rome, Bologna, San Gimignano. And some of the works that he made actually are known, dispersed over the Italian peninsula. What's most striking, however, is that he enrolled in the army as a mercenary at the service of Italian condottieri. Our only source for this is Giorgio Vasari, 
But the information that he gives is so detailed that it makes it really reliable. All Italy, you should know, was in war at the turn of the century. Florentines against the Venetians, Venetians against the French, and of course the Spaniards that were taking over the peninsula coming up from Naples. It was a truly turbulent moment of Italy's history, and it seems Torrigiano participated actively in several of these crucial battles with the Florentines in the failed conquest of Pisa, with the troops of Cesare Borgia, the infamous Cesare Borgia, in the conquest of Emilia-Romagna, and finally in the Battle of Garigliano that marked the end of the French occupation of the Italian peninsula. It seems that Torrigiano was a personal witness of all these incredible events, after which, for reasons that completely escape me, at least, he decided to return to his work as an artist. But now, not in Italy anymore, but first in France, then the Netherlands, and finally, England and Spain. Um, a long and intense life. <laughs> and it's certainly true that when he reappears in the evidence as a craftsman, he is working for some of the most famous and best-known European elites. Who was he working for and how did he get in that position? How did he get the introduction? It depends to where he was working. So we have also to consider this very different geography of Europe at the time, right? Nothing like the one that we have today is more homogeneous, if you want, right? So Torriano was, so it seems, a quite flexible artist. It is true that he preferred certain media, clay, for example, and they had a unique taste for realism. But the Florentine explored different genres depending on the demand coming from his diverse patrons, we just mentioned, right? Responding in particular to your uh, question on his elite patrons, for example, it is, I believe, very interesting that while in Spain he mostly made large sacred images for the local nobility, in England, instead, his market included not only the royal family, but also some of the most prominent humanists and religious reformers. This aspect of his work is unfortunately not that well known, but while in England, Torrigiano made the bust portrait of John Collett. It went destroyed, but a plaster cast has been preserved. He also made a portrait of a member of the King's Court, John John, which can be seen today, by the way, in King's College. And most probably, he even made the portrait of no other than Erasmus of Rotterdam, at the time a professor of Greek in Cambridge, and someone we know Torrigiano met in England as they collaborated, even if briefly, in the making of the tomb of the king's mother at Westminster Abbey, Lady Margaret Beaufort. So they certainly met. It is this long story, and I don't have time to summarize it all now, but the alternative for the identification of this bust that happens to be today at the Metropolitan Museum in New York is Bishop John Fisher, the Catholic cardinal that would be executed by the order of Henry VIII in 1535. So we have two possibilities, but whether Erasmus of Rotterdam of Bishop Fisher, therefore it is clear that Torrigiano worked for the highest intellectual, academic and religious elite of England, which I find myself fascinating, right? Having truly responded to your question, how did he make it <laughs> uh, <laughs> to contact these patrons? We can go over that if you want me to. I mean, it just seems extraordinary. He goes from being a soldier and then suddenly there he is being patronised by some of the most wealthy and brilliant people in Europe. So <laughs> I would love to know. <laughs> the thing is that, of course, there was a quite large community of Florentines living in London at the time. It included people like the Bardi, the Cavalcanti. They were important bankers, but mostly merchants too. And it is well known that they constituted a quite close community that took care of each other. And this happened for all their businesses, right? Actually, one thing that is always said about these people is that they valued, among any other virtue, 
that of friendship, because, you know, friendship helped them build these social links. Torrellano, when he arrives to London, he falls into this important Florentine network. When you read over the documents of Torrellano's life, most of which have been found in the Archivio di Stato, in the archive in Florence, they show that repeatedly these people, the Frescobaldi, the Bardi, the Cavalcanti, acted as either go-betweens in between him and the court or even uh, financing his projects and maybe acting as warrantors, for example. So he was in London, most probably he was just speaking Italian all the time, you know, to these prominent and very well-educated people, I have to say. They were well-known and these people were really smart. So he's traveling across Europe, but always following on the steps, on the routes that had been already been uh, set down by these, if not friends, colleagues, uh, local citizens of Florence. And you've suggested some of the sort of things that he was making for his patrons. So you mentioned busts and tombs. What else does he become famous for? Torriano was a sculptor, obviously, but he was of a very particular kind. So he preferred, among other media, not hard media such as marble, but he specialized in working with terracotta, with clay sculpture. And that we know that's something that he had learned already in Florence, and he became kind of an expert on this. Throughout all his travels, he always tried to contact patrons that would appreciate his work. And that happened to him when he comes to the Netherlands. He works for the governor of the Low Countries, Margaret of Austria. Uh, that happens to him again when he arrives to England. So he will be working on terracotta. So many of the works that he makes in England are in this medium. And it happens to him again in Spain. His most magnificent works are all of them large-scale clay sculptures. In which genres? Well, he does get specialized in two things. Tombs, effigies. This way, he would be described as an image maker and a maker of effigies, but also bust portraits. So he was had a tendency to explore the limits of realism, not only by using clay, but also painting it. And that's something that he does everywhere, right? He does that Already, when he's working in Italy, he does that for Henry VII. He does that for, I believe, Erasmus of Rotterdam. He does that for this extraordinary tomb of John Jong in King's College, which is the whole tomb is made out of, kind of translated into terracotta. And he does that at the end of his life in Spain, these immense large-scale figures, right? So he's kind of translating the Italian Renaissance to a different media, also kind of a different taste. And that speaks about he can adapt to different markets, but also how he has a very strong personality. He's unique, he's different. He's not what the other artists are doing in Italy. He's doing something different and unique. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's gonna come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Bullfords were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of 
graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And just for those who are trying to grasp what it means to have this artist operating in a Renaissance style. What is Renaissance about his art? Could you help us understand that? Yes, absolutely. So why is it that Torriano is a Renaissance artist, although he has been very much marginalized? So, you know, people know about Torriano because he broke Michelangelo's nose. That would make famous anybody, right? But uh, we don't know that much of the artist and, you know, People in England would know of the tombs at Westminster, certainly. People in Spain might know about the sculptures that he made, but very much ignore the work in England. In Italy, they know about what he made in Italy and mostly about his encounter with Michelangelo, but little about the others. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because it is important to see that we need to look into the Renaissance a little bit out of the box. So he was certainly trained in the old tradition of the Renaissance, looking back to antique models. And that we know very well. So he was in Florence studying at this garden of San Marco, and his tasks were as a student, you know, to make drawings of these statues in their collection. We know that when he moves to Rome, he spends a lot of time studying things like the Belvedere Torso, today one of the masterworks at the Vatican Museums. So he's very much into this love for the antique that, in a way, characterizes the Renaissance. What's distinct of him is that then he translates these masterful lessons into very different media. So instead of making out of these, you know, Michelangelo's Moses, which is in competition in the same medium with what the antique Greek and Roman artists were doing, he does translate these lessons of the antique into this new medium of clay, and then he paints them. <laughs> so he brings life to these statues, not by just resemblance, but by truly make them completely realistic. Actually, very often, uh, this is why portraiture is so important. And it is so important, not only when he was doing real portraits of the people that he met in England, but when he made a statue, a religious icon, he would give it the face of someone. So Vasari, for example, tells us that, right? He made this beautiful image of St. Jerome, but we know that he used the portrait of this Florentine that he knew, that he really thought that had the expression that he needed for the statue. 
He's a very weird artist. So he is part of the Renaissance. That's a very different take on it, if you will. And that's, uh, so he's not marginal, quite the opposite. He's just a different way of doing things. And maybe we art historians are um, too much fond of Vasari and we should expand our way of looking into these things, I would say. <laughs> the other thing that comes to mind for me, because I spent some years working as a curator at Hampton Court, which has the terracotta roundels made by Giovanni da Maiano. And these are later, these are the 1520s. But is the tradition that we see there something that has come from Torrigiano's example? Is that being passed on? Let me begin by saying that I, my work is mostly on Italian and Spanish art. In order to write this book, I had to learn a lot of English uh, Renaissance art. And I am a reader here, right? I'm interpreting other people's ideas. But I think that anybody would agree that the influence of Torrigiano when landing in England in 1510 was completely transformative. For two reasons. For the importance, the relevance of the commissions that he got. I mean, it's not anything to do with the tomb of... King Henry VII or be commissioned the tomb of Henry VIII, which he never finished, right? So he's really at the heart of power and artistic invention at the time. And those things would have been seen, respected and copied to the extent that the other artists were capable of doing it. But Torriano had also a more precise, specific influence on the importation of ransoms to England, which was that... In 1519, he even traveled to Florence to hire himself other Florentine artists that would help him work on projects that he himself was not allowed to do on his own, right? He needed some help. So instead of finding those artisans in London, the expertise, he wanted to be from Florence. So we know that he went in 1519, interviewed many artists. One was Cellini, as I was saying. Cellini turned him down. I don't want to go that far as England. But others did agree. For example, Benedetto Arrovezzano had a long career in England later, and he went, having been called by Torrigiano, he signed a contract with him to make would be part of his company. Antonio Toto is another one. So he became some sort of a bridge also for other artists that will follow on steps. So yes, his was of a unique importance in the introduction of the Renaissance in England. To a certain extent, the Renaissance in England would not look like it looks, was it not because of Torrigiano's influence, as it happens later in Spain too. So I think it was a very strong personality, definitely. So interesting. Can you tell me a bit about how he worked? I mean, you've talked to us about the medium he used, but in the actual process of making these pieces... That is something so interesting. And I've been so lucky that when working on this book, I've been working with the people at the a research institute here at Harvard, and speaking from Cambridge, this is why I say here at Harvard, which is the Strauss Conservation Center. And we have a very important expert on terracotta, Tony Siegel. So we've been doing these artworks, but also using modern technology like reflectography and thermoluminescence, another kind of important techniques. And so we know much more now about how these works were made. One thing that it is very interesting and was known already, but now we know much more, is that in order to achieve this spectacular realism, uh, he very often used death masks or life masks. And that is something that he had learned in Florence when working as an artisan. Probably when making ex voti, so images of religious interest, but not specifically of an artistic relevance, he learned this technique and developed it over the years. And 
Of course, England gave him a great opportunity because for the funerals, as you probably know, the building of effigies was so important. This had to be as lifelike as possible. So he introduced this technique of modeling in plaster, making out of death masks and then painting them. So he was very experimental in his work. Another important thing is that sometimes his large-scale terracotta sculptures needed to be baked in very big ovens. So these have to be built for that. And that was something, sometimes a challenge. So for example, for the largest ones in Seville, he most probably contacted previous a, an artist, a Florentine that had established in Seville in the previous years and had the technology in order to help him make these works that in such a scale had been rarely been made. So it is certainly very experimental and the, the technology is one important element of his work. And, you know, that is something to me also very important. I think we tend to think of the Renaissance in terms of style and beauty of inspiration. We tend to think less of the Renaissance in terms of the technology. <laughs> and that was no less important component of what they were doing. Right? And these people were doing things that had never been made before. And Torrigiano is just part of that tradition. He's an ambitious guy. He wants to make things that no one's ever seen. That's really fascinating. Now, your research has also involved some detective work. You've figured out that Torrigiano was the artist for some pieces that had previously been unattributed. And one of them is this beautiful 16th century terracotta bust of a woman. I now want to say terracotta as you do so beautifully, but I can't. Can you tell us what you have established and how you did this work? Yes, my work builds on the work of other very good art historians that have been doing very good work on trying to put together the catalogue of Torrigiano's work, which is very much dispersed, as I said. But there was one work of Torrigiano that had escaped the attention of everybody, which was a sculpture that a bust portrait in clay, as usual, that he had made of Mary Rose Tudor, so the daughter of the King of England. There was a document that had been published, you know, 100 years ago, 1914, and the document had been found in the Netherlands, in Brussels, in the archives. And it said that this Pietro Torrigiano, who happened to be in Brussels at the time, made this amazing portrait of Mary Rose Tudor, which would have been the first work that he ever made for England, therefore the one that would have opened him the market of the Tudor court. So it was a very important work. But for some reason, that document had been overlooked and no one had tried to find the statue. So I did work on it and I did find important evidence that the sculpture did exist. The evidence came from the resemblance of Mary Rose Tudor to a certain statue who happened to be at the Harvard Art Museums in Cambridge and a spectacular work of art. But the conclusive evidence that we had to connect this artwork of an immense beauty to that document was that document referred to how the statue had been broken across the neck so that Torrigiano had had to fix it. That was actually what the document was about. So this is when, you know, my colleagues at the Strauss Conservation Center helped me, took x-rays, look over all the material, and we discovered that actually, you know, the statue was broken at exactly the same place where this document from 1510 was saying and oh, had been wow. fixed at the time. So this is one of those moments of <laughs> joy that art historians come across a few times in their lifetime. And the statue is, I think, is 
Not only the sculpture is beautiful, it is also of very important historical interest because we know the circumstances in which Mary Rose Tudor was engaged at the time with the Archduke of Austria, future Emperor Charles I. So we know that this work of art was made exactly on the occasion of that later not accomplished betrothal. So it is also, I think, something important for the history, not only of Torriano, but to a certain extent to that of the Tudors, yes. Absolutely. And I'm thinking Anne Boleyn would have accounted Torrigiana's work in Brussels well before she came back to a court that was latterly, rather blatantly, becoming Renaissance. So I want to ask you also about Torrigiano as a person, because clearly he's highly talented, he's groundbreaking, he's developing new ways of approaching the figuring of people. And yet your work seems to suggest that he's not very well liked. <laughs> I mean, what did his contemporaries thought of him? Is his breaking of Michelangelo's nose a good way of understanding his character? So there are two things here, I believe. One is what his peers thought of him. Was he liked by his contemporaries? And the other thing is, how do we think today about him. For the first one, a man had so many years in the army, who had broken Michelangelo's nose, and this was certainly known. There's actually several people that tell this story. And actually, Michelangelo himself, in his kind of authorized biography, that of Condivi, does tell the story. It was this guy who broke my nose, a little brawl when we were teens at the school of San Marco. When he met Cellini in 1519, Cellini, Cellini recalled when he later wrote his autobiography how fearful this guy was. For example, he does say details like he knitted his eyebrows when speaking so that he make him like very almost a fierce aspect. So he was a very violent guy. I don't think that unlike other artists, so for example, it is true he had killed many in the war, most probably, and he had broken Michelangelo's nose. Benvenuto Cellini, too, had to flee Florence, being accused of having, you know, murdered some other citizens. So this is not something that is unique of Torrigiano. What is, I think, more characteristic of him is that he had a very intense sense of pride, and that made him not being loved so much. And so it is interesting that when Vasari introduces the story of his life, he does introduce him with a very long discourse on what Vasari would call superbia, pride. And he says that he was like one of the artists that most represented this otherwise characteristic attribute of the artists. So he was certainly not loved. And I think that some people thought of him that he was a little trustworthy. And that happens, for example, when he moves in back to Florence, to recruit artists to work in England in 1519, we know that the bankers in Florence from the Italian community wrote to their friends in Florence saying, be careful with this guy. Do not believe everything that he's saying. He might take your money and never come back. And that actually is what he did. So <laughs> he actually didn't return to England. Most probably he just took a ship and a boat and went to Spain where he finished his days. So people didn't like him. The other thing is why do we not like him today? And that's where he broke Michelangelo's nose. And that, of course, make him <laughs> the subject of a kind of a black legend cast on him. So he plans to go home and have a nice retirement. But you said earlier that he suffered terribly at the hands of the Inquisition. So what happened to him? 
So I know it looks like I'm telling you a novel and not an art history book. What I'm going to be telling you is actually just what documents tell us. Documents beginning with his 16th century biography, that of Vasari, said that when he finished in Italy, 1519, after having met Benvenuto Cellini, he decided to explore new markets, go to Spain. No, where better for a market than Seville, one of the wealthiest cities at the time anywhere in the world. So he goes there, and according to Vasari, he says, well, then he made this big artwork, the image of a virgin for an important local nobleman who paid him in the local currency. So the story goes, Torriano goes home, counts the money, and has an Italian friend help him see how much money that would make into the Italian currency. And he says that he's paid you much less <laughs> than you deserve. So he gets very angry breaks the statue so that breaking a religious image at the time in Spain's early 16th century was, of course, something very serious. He's denounced to the Inquisition, goes to the Inquisition and dies in jail, accused of heresy. I mean, breaking images at the time is something that's happening both in the Reformation. We can think of England, of course, but, you know, the Netherlands at the time. But also there were episodes of iconoclasm in previous years in Spain related to the religious minorities of Moors and Jews. So this was something that was kind of in the air. Maybe the reasons for him to break the statue were different, but he would have been seen as a heretic. What I've just told, however, is what Vasari says. And it looks so much as a legend that everyone had always thought, you know, this is a beautiful story, we'll make it for a beautiful book, uh, maybe even a comic strip. And actually, there is a comic strip on this story. But, you know, that cannot be real. And that's how things were until I was working on Torrellano a few years ago. I was working in the archive, but now in Madrid, and uh, came across a document that talked about a man, his name, Pietro, the Florentine, that had actually died in the jail of the Inquisition in Seville. So the the story was true. So Torriano, yes, died in the jails of the Inquisition at the castle of Triana in Seville, probably the year 1526. The document of the trial has not come down to us, unfortunately, but legend and history come together in his life story in ways that are unique for any Renaissance artist. So it is not just a Ben Travato, it is Vero in this case. But it seems extraordinary to me because, of course, it's something he's made. And the idea that the object becomes so holy that even its maker can't unmake it is, well, obviously it's amazing to us. But there we go. Is it unfair to say that in the end he dies as a result of his pride or is it justifiable pride in being paid properly for his work? I think that actually... It's exactly the case. He dies because of his hybris, as the Greeks would say, his immense pride. So we know that he died in Inquisition jail, that the story that he did die in the jail because of having broken a statue cannot be proved. We know that he came across the Inquisition and that was the end of his life. That's what we know. But at the same time, everything that we know about his character, his ambition and his pride, this idea about exploring, you know, new markets for all his life, maybe thinking of one day returning to Florence, probably, you know, but at the same time, in the meantime, taking the highest risks possible. I do think that it would be fair to say it was pride what brought him to this tragic end. Absolutely. I think in a way he's exemplary of this wicked element of the legend, but also of the real nature of the Renaissance artist. 
So let's just sum up then. You've given us so much to think about in terms of his work and his character. Let's just try and really gather our thoughts on his significance. Why should we be turning our attention to this man? What has his influence been? Okay, so to me, and this is actually in a way what triggered my interest and my the idea of writing a book on this man, there's two things, again. One is about the story of his life in itself. You know, it's just fantastic. It's, you know, it needs to be told. But that in itself is not exactly what I only wanted. I think there's something more important. Torriano allows us to think of the Renaissance in very different terms as what usually we have been told about the Renaissance, a phenomenon being localized in Italy and then exported to the margins. I think that what Torriano helps us to think is of the Renaissance in a much more dynamic, complex geography in which there were, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, different ways of understanding what an artist was, unlike an artisan, different ways of understanding what an image was, you know, maybe for the English, the Italians, it was more of an artwork, definitely for the Spaniards was more of a object of devotion and cult and therefore a sacred object. Definitely for the Italians, art had to be made in marble and monochrome. Well, there were other places in Europe where we were thinking about these things in very different ways, right? And it had to be polychrome, had to be realistic. So I think it allows us to rethink the geography of the Renaissance in a much more interesting way, more flexible, more dynamic, more alive, more lively in many ways, right? And, and more risky. And for myself, you know, being a specialist mostly in Spanish art, it is to me like the opportunity to think of this area as that of England, not in the margins of the Renaissance, but just as an, another way of thinking of, interpreting, maybe translating the Renaissance in, in different languages. In other words, we need to remember him as more than someone who just broke Michelangelo's nose. Very much so. Thank you. <laughs> But I want people to remember it because it will help them find your book on this important man when it comes out later this year. It is called The Man Who Broke Michelangelo's Nose. And it comes out at the end of this year, we hope, Penn State University Press. So something that you must get your hands on, folks. Thank you, Professor Pereira. Thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for you and to the interest of the programme on my work. Really, it's been a delightful conversation. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.